Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day from me as well. You know, the Apostle John says to us that when Jesus came, not everybody understood, not everybody embraced him, not everybody realized who he was and what he was. But it says that for those who did embrace Jesus, for those who accepted him as Lord, they were given the right to be called children of God. And so we all have the same father, don't we? As people who believe in Jesus, we all live under the same father. And I am convinced I know what makes God happy. So if you want God to have a happy Father's Day, what makes God happy is for us to smile knowing how much he loves us. Right? That's all he wants from us. He's got things for us to do. He's got plans and purposes. But what really touches the father's heart, just like you dads, is when your kids just love you and recognize how much you love them. So that's not even my message. Today we're going to continue in the standout sermon series. And when Alex first proposed this title to me, I was kind of like, that's interesting. I wonder how people are going to take that. Because we live in a culture where most people, not everybody, but most people don't want to stand out. Most people are petrified of standing out, of doing anything that draws attention to them, right? They'd just rather conform and fit in. And I remember probably the first time I was aware of standing out, I was actually in the first grade. Yeah, that's the highlight of my life, first grade. <laughs> I scored all of the points, not some, all of the points in an all-star basketball game in the first grade. You know what the final score was, right? Two to nothing. Because we were in the first grade playing with 10-foot rims. Same rims Michael Jordan plays on, we were playing. With all my might, I somehow lofted the ball into the net. It was the first time there had been a score in the first grade because it was all done by grades. First grade basketball all-star game in years and years and years. And that was me. I stood out. I liked it. <laughs> So my personality is a little bit different, but I understand how so many would rather just kind of go along fitting in, never standing out. And yet God's purpose for us is exactly that we stand out. God's calling on his people is to display to the world around them something different than what everybody else is doing. Believing something more deeply, living by more conviction than what everybody else is doing. That's our role. And so standing out really is an important thing for us to keep in mind. It's an important focus. It's actually an important goal that we should have, that our relationship with Jesus Christ should make us stand out from those that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what I would encourage you to do is think about this word, stand out, and turn it around to a person who stands out is what? outstanding. God is looking for outstanding believers. God is looking for an outstanding church, an outstanding group of people who will respond. And when you think about where we've come so far in this series, we find people who we consider outstanding, right? When you think of Gideon and Gideon who was willing to stand out in obedience, when God called him to take care of the idolatry that was occurring within his own household so that he could then be used to deliver his people from an enemy, 
he responded with outstanding obedience. When we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that Alex taught about last Sunday, we see people who are outstanding in faith. People who said, you can, you can kill me. You can throw me into the fiery furnace, but I'm still not going to bow down to a false god. I'm still not going to give in to the peer pressure. I'm still not going to let culture persuade me to do something that I know is wrong. That's outstanding faith. And today what I want to talk about is outstanding worship. Now that may seem odd. Outstanding worship. Well, worship doesn't quite seem as important to us, does it, as obedience and faith and all of those really big things. But I think it matters greatly when we really understand, when we really grasp what worship is all about. And so before we look at a biblical demonstration of what I consider outstanding worship, we need to lay a foundation. We need to lay an understanding of what worship really is, why worship matters. You need to know why worship matters so that we can make it a priority in our lives. We need to know who it is that worship is really all about so that we can maintain that right perspective of worship. And we need to know how worship is validated so that we can adopt an acceptable posture before God when we come to him in worship. But underlying all of that, we have to come to an understanding of what worship really is. What is worship? Is worship music? We call it worship music, right? We have a worship team. Fantastic worship this morning. By the way, as we were singing that song, I think this entire series is about what happens when heaven comes down. What happens to individuals who give themselves over to God and God comes down and anoints them and uses them. So when we talk about and sing about heaven coming down, that's what we're saying. We're just saying, God, here I am. Use me. But it's more than just music, isn't it? This is a part of worship, but it's more than music. We call this a worship service when we gather, right? The church comes together, we name it a worship service. But what's the real definition of worship that we find in Scripture? Well, Paul tells us when he's writing to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Giving ourselves to God, offering him our lives, offering him all that we are, all that we have, all that we ever can be and do, is really the big picture of what we mean when we say worship. As a worshiper of God, it's more than singing, it's more than gathering, it's actually the surrender of our lives. It's a lifestyle, not an activity, right? And so I would give you this definition. Worship is the bodily expression of appreciation for the presence and power of God at work in our lives. Let me repeat that. Worship is the bodily expression of appreciation for the presence and the power of God at work in our lives. What do I mean by bodily expression? Well, worship is a spiritual reality, right? We worship a God who we've never seen. 
We worship a God who we've probably never heard audibly, but a God we very much know and a God we very much experience through our spirit. His spirit is alive within us. So it's a spiritual reality that is played out with a physical evidence. In other words, what I'm saying is worship is not just words. We can put pretty words up from songs on screens. We can say prayers, but if those words don't penetrate, if those words don't make a difference in our actions, if they don't manifest themselves in a transformed life, then we're not worshiping. And so it's a bodily expression. It's the giving of our lives over. Now, a lot of people, there's been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of conversation over how do you express worship. Some people are into exuberance and shouting, right? That's okay. Others worship through quiet reflection and meditation. Worship can also be brokenness and tears. Worship can also be service to other people, doing acts of kindness. Worship can also be giving the ultimate price, martyrdom, laying our lives down because we're so appreciative of what God has done for us. In other words, there is no right way to worship. There is only a right attitude of worship. And the church has always struggled with this. The great Italian poet Dante Alighieri, who you know from the Divine Comedy, if you ever had to study that in school, if anybody even studies that in school anymore, or the Inferno, he wrote those two great poems. He was once deeply immersed in a meditation in a worship service, in a church service. And he failed to kneel at the appropriate moment in the service because it was all very ordered and you were supposed to do a certain thing at certain points in the service. And he had a lot of enemies. And his enemies hurried off to the bishop and they started tattling on him and they demanded that Dante be punished for this great sacrilege of failing to kneel at the appropriate time. And so Dante was hauled in before the bishop and asked to defend himself. And what he said was this. He said, if those who accuse me had their eyes on God and their minds on God as I had, then they too would have failed to notice what I was doing. In other words, it isn't about what the other person is doing. If you're distracted because somebody raises their hand or somebody's breaking out in tears in a worship service, your eyes are on the wrong place. Right? It's about us worshiping with a heart towards God. So quickly, why does worship matter? In John chapter 4, we get the story of Jesus speaking with a woman at a well in Samaria. So this is a Samaritan woman, and she's talking to Jesus, and she asks him this question. She says, you know what? Tell me what the right way to worship is. You Jews say it has to be in Jerusalem, it has to be in the temple, and it has to look like this. We Samaritans say it's here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and it looks like this, this, and this. So which one is true? And Jesus says to her in response this. He says, but the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? Sounds good. What does it mean? What is, 
in spirit and in truth mean? If we jump over to the message translation of this same passage, I think it becomes a little clearer to us. Eugene Peterson writes it this way. He says in Jesus' words, it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people that the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. That really helps, right? That helps clarify it for us. But the most important thing that amazes me in this passage is Jesus tells us that God is out looking for worshipers. See, sometimes we think we are so far from God and we've got to do so much to be able to get into God's presence and experiencing him when Jesus is saying and proves in his own life, no, God shows up. God's looking for those who are looking for him. God longs for the relationship with those who long for him. He wants that more than we can imagine. His eyes are roaming throughout the earth looking for people whose hearts are toward him in worship, in a posture that says, I love you, I need you, I give my life to you. You know, the only other time you'll ever see this idea of God seeking, of God coming down and looking, is what we find in the Gospels where Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. God is seeking. God is after us because he's passionate about us, because he wants the relationship with us so dearly and so desperately. Why is God seeking after us? Well, so that we may have life and have it to the full. That's why worship matters. See, God is not moved by our religious practices and rituals. Religion religion is like a container. If I had a if I had a big beautiful well, let me put it this way. People of my generation and my age, remember when homemade ice cream was the big thing? Everybody had an ice cream maker, right? Some of those ice cream makers were really impressive machines. But guess what? Just having the ice cream maker didn't make ice cream, did it? You had to put ingredients in, and you had to mix them, and you had to give them time and give them effort if you wanted to get the ice cream. Well, religion's the maker, but you need to put the ingredients in. Worship is the ingredients. The relationship with God is the ingredients. So he's not moved by our practices and our rituals. He's moved by our faithfulness to him. And he's moved by our faithfulness to his kingdom purposes. God is seeking those who are seeking him. The bottom line. And so the priority of true spiritual worship, here's your takeaway. The priority of true spiritual worship is unbroken connection with the kingdom of God. So when you sing in a worship service to the worship music and you sing the words, your kingdom come, you better be ready because God is ready to release his kingdom. God is looking for people who sing those words or say those words with a sincerity of heart, with a hunger, with a desperation. God will answer. He's looking for you. 
James Bryan Smith says it this way. He says, as we express our longing for God, God meets us and our heart finds what it is looking for. Wouldn't you love to know with all confidence that what you most desperately are looking for and longing for, God is most ready to give? It's not only Happy Father's Day, it's Happy Kids Day. But see, we can't be seeking the kingdom of God and seeking for ourselves at the same time. It just doesn't work. So we need to talk about who worship is really about because sometimes we manipulate it with the words about God but really make it about ourselves. So who's worship about? I remember Alex's sermon on one of the very first Sundays that we came to Generation Church last year. And he identified for me the perspective of worship perfectly when he was pointing out a statement that John the Baptist made when he's confronted by his own disciples, John's disciples, who who say to him, you know what, there's this guy Jesus over there and he's gaining all of the crowd. Everybody's leaving us and going over to him. And Jesus says to respond, or John says to res- in response, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. And Alex said, that is the true definition of worship. And that's really stuck with me. So beyond all the theology, beyond all of the trying to understand what it looks like and how it acts, that's simply all you have to take from that. Worship is us becoming less and less so that God becomes greater and greater. And King David serves as a perfect example of this, right? In the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 6, we find the story of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark demonstrating and representing God's relationship with his people, actually God's presence among his people. And it's been taken into Philistine territory, and then the Philistines have some difficulties with it. They wind up with plagues and they wind up infested with rats and tumors and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, get rid of this. Send it back to Israel. It's Israel's God. Send it back. And it sits in a person's house for a while because it was treated as less than holy as it should have been. And finally, David decides he's going to bring it in. Well, he tries to bring it up the first time, does it wrong, winds up again in a mess. So the second time he decides he's going to bring it to Jerusalem, he does it correctly. He follows the way it needs to be done. And it says this, that while they're coming along and they're bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, they're having a big party. They're having a big celebration. They're worshiping God, singing and dancing and just enjoying themselves in the presence of God. But it tells us this, when David returned home, To bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said in disgust, oh, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. See, he had been so caught up in his love for God, so caught up in his moment of worship that he had stripped off his outer cloak And he was just losing himself in abandon. How many of you know God loves for us to lose ourselves in abandon before him? Again, we don't like that. That makes us uncomfortable. What will people think? How many Michaels are out there looking at what the other person's doing? 
he just loses himself in worship, which pleases God. And so David retorts to Michael, it says, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel to the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. And listen to this. In verse 22, 1 Samuel 6, he says, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. When you think about your relationship to God, when you think about the way you feel about him, are you that free? Are you that willing to abandon yourself for God's sake in worship that you're willing to look foolish in the eyes of the people in the row around you? Are you willing to be humiliated even in your own eyes? Are you willing to become less and less and less and less so that he can become greater and greater and greater? That's what worship is about. It's about loving God that much. Because David's really saying this. He's saying, I will stand out in my worship of God. You will notice the way I worship God. And I'm not doing it for you to notice. I'm doing it because I love God. But I will stand out. I will be an outstanding worshiper of God. So if your heart is set that way, we remember that it's about being willing to lose yourself, to be abandoned to the purposes and worship of God. We'll never be able to stand out in worship while we feel the need to manage our image, while we feel the need to protect our reputation or maintain our status. All of that, dear friends, is self-worship. And that is the spirit of the age in which we live, and that is idolatry. Casting crowns, you like casting crowns? They have a great new song out called Only Jesus, and the words say this, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. That's a heart of worship. That's the spirit of worship. And so the perspective of true, worship, true spiritual worship, for your second takeaway, is this. The perspective of true spiritual worship is always the glory of God. Always. So how is worship validated? Well, I'm going to give you the most unlikely hero you can imagine in the Bible. We know all the big names. We know the guys that get all the press. We know the guys that get the, the flannel graphs in Sunday school, right? This person's never shown up on a flannel graph as far as I can tell. And guess what? It's Father's Day, but I'm going to talk about a woman. Because, see, we, <laughs> we tend to put guys on the flannel graphs, right? We tend to live, and the Bible tends to live in a very patriarchal culture. But Jesus, especially in Luke's gospel, just emphasizes so much the power of the women and their relationship to him. And guys, we have so much to learn from that. So our hero is an unlikely hero, and we're going to find the story in Luke chapter 7. But listen to this. I do not want you to read it. I'm not going to have Zach put it up there. I don't want you to read it. I don't want you to think about the words by your eyes. I want you to hear them. So just listen. Look at this picture. But here's what I really want you to do this morning. I want you to imagine that you are in this scene. The scene is taking place at the home of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. So imagine Simon has invited you to this meal 
He's invited Jesus to this meal and listen to the story. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head. But she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so we see that beautiful pattern of God's grace at work in this picture. Recognition of the need for a Savior, repentance of sin, and redemption into a new life of Christ. This is his offer to all mankind. This is the good news of Jesus. But only some have the ears to hear it and the humility to receive it. So let's compare these two characters for a few minutes this morning in the context of worship. Who is this woman? Well, we know that she is an outcast from society. We know that she is unnamed in the story. She is not anonymous. It would be one thing if she were just anonymous, but she's actually infamous. Most of the city, I would imagine, cannot name her name, but they know what she does. They know what her sins are. They know her by reputation. They know her by the label that people give her rather than the name. She's a sinner. She's immoral. But I think God looks upon her and says, this woman is one of those who is poor in spirit because she recognizes her poverty. 
Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. They will be blessed with the kingdom. This is a story of how a sinner receives the kingdom of God. And she receives it through worship. She receives it through gratitude. Simon, on the other hand, is everything this woman is not. Simon is a fine, upstanding citizen in this town. He is a man of some reputation. He is a man who has joined with a group of religious people who are known for their sincerity, who are known for their strictness, who are known for their desire to be everything God has called them to be, the Pharisees. He's a man who is confident of his discernment. He is sure that he is qualified to judge what sin is, who is a sinner, and who is not a sinner. Guess which category he puts himself. Because he's also a proud man, isn't he? In fact, I often wonder if this Simon is the person that Jesus was talking about when he tells the parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go into the temple. Remember that story? These two come into the worship service in the worship temple, and the Pharisee stands up in prayer and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. I thank you that I do this and I do that and all these things you want me to do according to your law. And the tax collector, sitting some rows behind him, doesn't even raise his eyes to God. He's so humble. He's so aware of his need. And all he can do is beat his breast and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I wonder if that's the same guy, the same Pharisee. Maybe Jesus created that story on the spot after this occasion. Let's go back to the woman for a second. We know who she is. What does she do? Well, She clearly defies social convention, right? She has no business coming into this home of somebody who's not in her class, of somebody who sees himself as so much more important and worthy than she. She violates the religious directives because by taking down her hair, Jewish women had to wear their hair up all times, covered. If you released your hair, you were announcing, I am an immoral woman. That's the way it was viewed. She has total disregard for anything we would call economic prudence, right? Because she takes the most valuable thing that she has, which is this jar of what Jesus calls rare perfume, and instead of selling it and living off of it, does what? Empties it onto Jesus. Pours it out on the ground over his feet. But she's also a woman who recognizes her need. And she recognizes that her need can be met by the one who loves her. Now, where do you think she first heard of Jesus? Why do you think she's there that day? What what is it about him that drives her into his presence, that makes her willing to jump over the hoops of social convention and religious purity and even the idea of economics? What causes her to abandon herself? Had she heard Jesus preach somewhere? Had she seen Jesus do miracles, 
healing people's bodies, casting out demons. We don't know. All we know is that she sensed something in Jesus that she knew would meet her need, her deepest need, more than the need to fit in, more than the need to be religiously pure, more than the need of her economic situation. She just had to be in Jesus' presence, and she has to express what's in her heart. She has to demonstrate this deep devotion through this action that makes her ridiculed in the eyes of her contemporaries. And in the end, she receives God's grace. She is forgiven, and she is saved. Simon, on the other hand, what does Simon do? Well, Simon invites Jesus to dinner. Let's give him credit for that, right? I'm not sure his motivation was that pure, but he invites Jesus to dinner. But he fails to show Jesus any kind of hospitality. The three things that he mentioned are three things that would have been absolutely crucial in a Middle Eastern culture. When someone comes into your house, remember, they're wearing sandals. And their feet are dusty because they don't have any black top. They're walking on sand and dust. And so every time you went into the house, there was a pool of water, pitcher water, in which you were allowed to wash your feet. It's just a custom. You also greet your visitor with a kiss, a sign of welcome, a sign of appreciation, a sign of equality. And then you provide a little bit of oil, an anointing, if you will, that basically says we recognize you've been out in that hot Middle Eastern heat, and here's just a little bit of comfort for your sunburn or your temperature. Three actions that anybody is worthy of receiving just because it's culture, and yet Simon purposely doesn't do any of them. I think that gives us some insight into what his motivation is, right? He's not there to see Jesus as an equal. He's not there to learn. That's not his posture. His posture is, I'm going to embarrass this guy, and I'm going to prove he's a fraud. And that's exactly where we see his thoughts taking him, right? He dismisses Jesus as a fake. If he were a prophet, then he would know who this woman is. Ah, joke's on you, Simon. I know exactly who she is. And I love her. I love her because... She loves me, and she will meet me. I will find her because she is seeking me. He condemns the woman as irredeemable. He knows what's true because Jesus questions him. Who's right in this story? Who's going to love him more, the one that's given up? The most debt or the least debt? The one who has been forgiven the most debt? Yeah, that's true. Hey, why don't you apply it to your life? You understand the right answer, but you don't know how to apply it to your life. A lot of people sitting in churches this morning, brothers and sisters, that know the right answers and aren't applying it to their lives. And he knows who Jesus is in his own mind. He judges Jesus as a blasphemer, right? See, Jesus in this story indicates for us a clear trajectory from God's mercy to our gratitude, right? 
and he brings in a clear parallel between love and worship. And so we worship genuinely, I would say, to the degree that we are consistently grateful for what God has done for us and that we are faithful to do for him all that he asks of us. That's really how we can validate our own worship. And so your third takeaway is the posture of true spiritual worship is sacrificial devotion to God. The posture of true spiritual worship is sacrificial devotion to God. So let me summarize for us as we close. This is what outstanding worship calls us to. First, we have to position ourselves to be present to God. That means both physically and spiritually. You ever come in here on a Sunday morning and you're present, but your mind is a million miles away? Shake your head yes. I know you have. I have. Alex has. Sometimes we even do it while we speak, don't we? And all of a sudden your mind just goes off to something else. But we have to position ourselves to be present to God physically and spiritually. See, the woman and Simon, think about this, they both had the very same opportunity to interact with Jesus at this dinner, don't they? The exact same opportunity to be in Jesus' presence and to receive whatever Jesus has. They position themselves right. Secondly, we have to acknowledge the dynamic of the relationship, and this is where these two separate. The woman is a woman who demonstrates humility in the presence of Jesus. She relates to God by faith, we could say, whereas Simon demonstrates pride in the presence of Jesus. He relates to God by law, right? I keep the rules. I am a good religious person. Oh, yeah, I miss the Son of God altogether over here, but somehow I keep the rules. There's pride in that. There's humility in the woman. So we acknowledge the dynamic of the relationship between us and God. Thirdly, we express our hearts freely. So the woman is expressing what in this? As you think about this story, as you're sitting there at that table, enjoying your hummus and pita or whatever they're having, and you're seeing this play out in front of you, what would you say the woman is expressing? She's expressing faith, right? She's expressing hope, and she's expressing love towards Jesus. Simon, on the other hand, is expressing what? We see him doubt who Jesus is. We see him judge Jesus. We see him judge the woman. They both express themselves in word and in action. So that's that bodily worship that I was talking about at the beginning. And again, there is no right way to worship, only the right attitude. Here we see the clear distinction between attitudes. The attitude of humility and the attitude of pride. And then lastly, we have to receive what God gives us in response. The woman receives more than she ever imagined. The woman in this story receives God's greatest gift. The woman receives forgiveness, 
and wholeness and restoration and reconciliation. Because that's God's great desire for her. As she longs for him, God longs for her to be made whole. Simon, however, receives correction. Simon receives, let's say, the opportunity for repentance, right? Because Jesus isn't blowing Simon off. Jesus never blows anybody off. He's just trying to hold a mirror up to Simon and say, look, we don't get any indication that Simon, of course, receives that correction and takes that correction and that he seizes the opportunity for repentance because like so much of the scripture, the story is left to us to decide how it's going to end. But those four steps, positioning ourselves to be present, acknowledging the dynamic, expressing our hearts freely, and receiving what God has in response, that's how we get to the stage of outstanding worship. And so as we close today, here's what I want to leave you with. This, this is the question for contemplation. And I want you to sit with this for a moment. And then I'm going to ask you to respond. The question is simply this. Am I fully aware of how much I need Jesus? I don't mean needed Jesus when I first recognized I was a sinner and said some sinner's prayer. I'm talking about today. No matter how long you've been in church, no matter how many sermons you've heard, no matter how deep your faith has been to this point, can you sit here today and truly recognize and be truly aware of how much you need Jesus at this moment? And am I truly appreciative of how much he has done for me? Are you inspired we stated in our singing. And so he shared with us, the presence is here. Jesus is here. We're at the table. We're in the house. And Jesus is right with us. Do you want to worship him? Well, maybe you're, you're here and you go, well, I don't really know who this Jesus is. You know, I only am starting to pursue well, let me tell you who he is. He is the answer to the longing of your heart. And you can come to him in this posture of worship today and say, I want to have a relationship. Or maybe you're here today and you're distant from Jesus. You've known him. You've had a relationship. But you know that it, worship isn't at the priority of your life right now. Your heart's growing cold. You've let culture and the world begin to suck the spiritual life out of you. Good news. Jesus is here. And he is as close today as a whispered prayer of repentance. And you can come to him in a posture of worship. Or maybe you're here today and you and God are doing great. You're, you're passionate about your relationship with Jesus. You're deeply in love with Jesus today. You're on one of those mountaintop experiences. Well, guess what? He's here and he's worthy of worship and he's worthy of adoration. 
And he's welcoming you just like David to strip off whatever you feel would hinder and worship him with abandon. Not caring about the opinions of the Michaels and the Simons around you. Come to him in a posture of worship. And what I want you to do this morning as Zoe continues to play for us, I want to invite you to come forward and I want you to pick up one of these vials of oil. I'll put them up here on the table. And I want you to open the vial or just pass it to the person behind you. Put some of the oil on your finger. And I want you to anoint this cross just like this. And I want that to be for you today a joyful expression of appreciation for the presence and power of Jesus Christ in your life. Maybe your point of entry, maybe a point of reconnection, maybe just a point of true appreciation. As you feel comfortable, come forward and worship Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of worshiping you. We thank you for encouraging our hearts to know that you are seeking those who will come and worship you, those who come in spirit and come in truth. We just lay our hearts bare before you today, Lord, for we know that nothing is hidden from your eyes. But we thank you for knowing that those eyes are always eyes of love and never eyes of condemnation. For knowing that you desire worshipers not out of some egotistical need, but you desire worshipers because worship represents relationship. You desire us. You desire intimacy. You desire to pour your love upon us as we express our love to you. So we pray, God, that our worship would always be acceptable. We give ourselves to you, offering our lives as living sacrifices. Everything we have, everything we are, we present to you, for you are worthy. And I pray, God, as we go from this place, a moment of a warmed heart would not quickly dissipate in the reality of the pressures of life, and the deep circumstances that so many of us are carrying. But I pray that we would wake up tomorrow in a spirit of worship. That as we arise, we would pray what Romans 12 talks about. That we would literally give ourselves to you that day and every day. Putting ourselves on your altar. Living sacrifices. acceptable and holy so that we may be those that stand out that we may be outstanding worshipers of the one true God so pour out your spirit upon us fill us with your truth that we may glorify you 
In Jesus' name we ask. And together we say, amen. God bless you. Max Licato says, the problem with a, with a living sacrifice is that it can crawl off the altar. <laughs> so don't do that. Have a great week. Be blessed. Happy Father's Day.